Hey, I'm Kehi. Welcome to Forward Thinking, a podcast about recreating your career. Brought to you by Quartz and supported by J.P. Morgan Chase. For me, it it was a sort of an idea of saying, "Hey, I'm jumping out of an airplane, and I don't know how to skydive, and I don't know how to pack the shoes. So as I'm falling, I've got to figure this thing out." That's Mike Zapata. He was a former Navy SEAL on the Team Six unit. And after 10 years of service, he left to reinvent himself as a hedge fund manager. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Delaney, editor in chief and co-founder of Quartz. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Kay. So you were managing director at BlackRock. You lived in the world of spreadsheets and hedge funds before you made your own career reinvention to media, to writing, podcasting. Were there any of the skills from your first career, your first professional? Life that transferred over. I was so terrified of the sunk costs of my first career—15 years in spreadsheets on Wall Street—as I tried to embark onto something new. But one of the first things that I realized was that one of the things that I loved doing in finance was storytelling, building a narrative, persuading people about my ideas. I did that in investment committees. I wrote memos doing that. That totally translated into the world of media, where as a writer and as a podcaster, I am always trying to create narrative arcs and really deeply connect and empathize with my audience. You know, when I look back in junior high, that was my first exposure to stocks, and we didn't have a lot of money. You know, I grew up on, you know, my family grew up on food stamps. You know, we had to save a lot. We had to work hard. Really teach myself、uh, how to. Manage money at an early age, and then continue to learn as I got older. So that was when the seed was planted.、Um, I Who taught you? You know, my mom taught me. You know, ten percent goes to tithes, ten percent goes to savings. Like start out, that's、yeah. the basics. That was my exposure to it. You know, reading a lot of books. You know, just sort of reading the basic books. Getting into undergrad. You know, getting in credit card trouble.、Um, like I, you know, people should and do, and how to get out of it. How to passively invest in a four hundred one k, and I think at that point, when I was an undergrad, it was a realization of saying,、um, okay, a portion of my income, whatever that is, is going to go to investments. I, I'm going to pay myself, and that's going to grow over time.、Mm-hmm. And it was a realization that that's something that I'm going to be doing the rest of my life, whether it's me doing it or someone else doing it for me. That will always be part of my life, and if you can do that, then that's going to be something valuable over time, and it's something you can pass on to your kids, or you can, you know, do things that you want to later on in life. How did you continue doing that while you were kind of traveling the world in combat? It's funny because this vision I have of SEALs, it's like I, I see like people working out and maps everywhere, and then like some value investing books. <laughs> Well,、like、strewn across the barracks. Yeah, and that's all accurate. You、yeah. know, we worked out a lot. We did a lot of mission planning, and you know, the side we like to do. I mean, there are some interesting later on, and in, when I got exposed to sort of derivatives trading, derivative、mm-hmm. options trading,、um, I was still in. I was a troop commander now. Okay, and you had us in Afghanistan, and somebody puts a position on, and you know, options are very volatile. I mean. You so know, you're trading options in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, so you so you know how volatile they are, right? Yes.、Um, so they move quickly, and a friend of mine put a position on, went on an op. The op took a lot longer than he thought. So call a couple of days. He came back, and the thing moved on him like tremendously, and the 
good direction. Okay. And, you know, when I started to teach myself, you read a book, you start to learn, you start to teach yourself and you start to practice. Like that's how you learn the best. Mm-hmm. So I did that, um, put a trade on, went to Washington DC because we were made, meeting with some agencies in order to do mission planning. And then I get on a plane, come back from DC, land in Virginia. When I pick up my phone, my thousand dollar investment, which is a lot for me, turned into 10,000 over, you know, in the span of that trip. And I was shocked by it, but it was, you know, dynamic. And I was just worried about how do I sell it? This was my first exposure to it. So that's my first taste into these emotions of this new world. Mm -hmm. And then the more you do that, the more you can sort of control it or see it or take a step back and uh, assess the situation in a proper way. KU, having worked on Wall Street, know this as much as anybody. Investing is so much about logging the miles. Mike was a Navy SEAL, and it's kind of hard to run a fund on the side when you're a Navy SEAL, right? Yes, the question of experience is such a poignant one when it comes to changing careers. Because by definition, in the new career, there may not be things that transfer over. And what Mike points out is that Yes, at the micro level, analyzing a balance sheet, determining a P&L, those were not things that he did as a SEAL. But if you zoom out and look at the forest from the trees, so much of his work as a SEAL was around solving problems with limited information. And once you had that information, trying to cut off the edge cases and reducing the risk for his squad. And so, yes, he didn't have the experience of looking at a financial statement, but he had a decade's worth of experience in the big picture of putting all the pieces together and problem solving. The longevity of BUDS, which is, you know, the basic SEAL training is probably the most challenging aspect of it. Um, if you take a step back and look at BUDS and the sort of the totality, it's you got through first phase, you got through hell week, and now you got the second phase and you got through pool comp, which is we lose a lot of guys in pool comp. Tell me about the pool. Pool comp. What does it develop in you? It is testing your ability to stay calm under duress situations. So, you know, the easy example is what do we all need? We need oxygen or we're not going to live, right? So... You're spending a lot of time in the swimming pool, nine feet deep. Um, they tie your hands and your legs behind your back, and you have to bop up and down, and you have to do that for a certain amount of time, right? That's like one aspect. You have to swim 50 yards underwater, not a dive in with a kickoff. It's it's a dive in, do a flip, don't kick off, swim. Guys pass out, guys don't make it, guys quit. Um, but the beauty of the water, what it does is your body knows it needs oxygen, and when it's lacking oxygen, your mind starts to get a little crazy. The crazier your mind gets, the more muscles you're going to use. The more muscles you use, the more oxygen you're going to consume. So that puts you in like this bad spot. So you have to calm yourself down. You have to focus on the problem. And that gives you just a little bit more time to think through it. If you cannot accomplish that or figure out how to get past that, then you're going to exhibit behavior that is little sporadic and that's going to probably make you fail in in the the exercise that you're supposed to do in order to pass it. Mm. How do you train yourself to not let your mind get crazy when you're bound to run nine feet underwater? Yeah. I mean, focus, 
that's it. It's focus. Like now it's a question of now you don't have oxygen. What happens if you can't get the oxygen? What do you do? And so you have to be able to focus and calmly think through the process. And all you're doing is problem solving. I mean, at the end of the day, they create problem solvers in that program. That's kind of the beauty of it. And if you focus on the problem, you can stay calm. You can focus a lot better. And you see this in a lot of professions. Mm-hmm. I mean, nurses, doctors, they rarely go running down the halls. That's yeah. that sort of, uh, you know, Hollywood dramatic. But if you run, your, your adrenaline is going to increase. That increase in your adrenaline is going to cause you to not see the problem. And that's a little bit of what we're doing is just staying focused and solving. And has that skill served you outside of the Navy? Yeah. I mean, I think it just serves you throughout life. We're all human and we're all prone to emotions. So the job is to sort of, um, you know, in these certain situations, how do you isolate those and how do you control them? Not so that you can become sort of a non-emotional robot, but just so that you can allow yourself to think through the problem. Is part of the challenge figuring out what skills you have ultimately? Like, so you think of yourself as a finance guy who is who does hedge fund research and then when you go to this next thing do you have to unpack what you actually know how to do and what you're good at to be able to figure that out redefining your skill set is such a critical part in recreating your career and the thing is that we're human we're attached to labels And we can get intellectually lazy about our activities. So you could be a biz dev person or a salesperson. And so your job is selling. But really, ultimately, if you peel back that label, your job is to build trust, to build deep human connection, to be in service of others, to empathize with clients. And countless, countless people who I talk to looking to make those career changes feel very limited by that strict definition of their role and their function and their skill set. And as you're able to peel back into what those skills truly consist of, you're able to really expand the opportunity set of things that you can do and things that you can create. Thanks to J.P. Morgan Chase for supporting Forward Thinking, a show that highlights people who've challenged the status quo to recreate their careers. Over the last two weeks, we've heard how Melissa Butler, founder and CEO of The Lip Bar, a cruelty-free makeup company, left a stable job in finance and ventured into the unknowns of startup life. Today, we'll talk about mentors and how they made a real difference for Melissa's company. Melissa, who had long been inspired by her mentor's career from afar, approached him at a trade show and struck up a conversation. Because of their instant connection and dual tie to the beauty industry, the two have remained in touch ever since. My mentor right now, um, he's been really impactful on our growth. I remember when we were launching on Target.com, I reached out like, hey, I got this opportunity to launch on Target.com, but I don't really know what that looks like. And he reached out to someone on his team and was just like, you know what, I want you to help guide Melissa. So along the way, it's just been about keeping in touch with people and letting them know what you're working on, what your hurdles are, and and allowing people to, to get involved and help you. So mentorship is huge. 
Developing a relationship with a veteran entrepreneur in Detroit is also what led Melissa to learn more about J.P. Morgan Chase's Entrepreneurs of Color Fund, which helps deploy low-cost loans and technical assistance to minority-owned businesses that lack access to traditional financing. This funding gave Melissa the help she needed to significantly expand her retail footprint. The lesson for Melissa was that entrepreneurs shouldn't be shy about finding mentors. For me, finding mentors has helped me understand how the business of media works and how to take an idea and turn it into a living. Finding mentors is something every entrepreneur should look for. Melissa also has this advice. Be extremely diligent and persistent in your quest to find the right mentors because it can be a life-changing experience and they can open doors for you that, that you didn't even know you needed opened. And that mentor doesn't necessarily have to be someone super high up. It could be someone, you know, maybe just two steps ahead as opposed to ten steps ahead. And now, looking back, Melissa has some advice for her younger self and for others who want to follow in her footsteps. The advice that I would give my younger self is to not rush it. I made a lot of mistakes early on, really just rushing the idea that I needed to launch or you know, I needed to do things or I needed to act big even though we were super small. The bottom line, Melissa Butler's mentors and the assistance from J.P. Morgan Chase helped her get her business to where it is today. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was determined to figure it out because I knew that I could move the needle for, for the culture and for women everywhere. Thank you to J.P. Morgan Chase for supporting Forward Thinking. Over the next five years, J.P. Morgan Chase is committing $150 million to its global Small Business Forward program to support women, minority, and veteran-owned small businesses. By connecting entrepreneurs to capital, targeted assistance, and support networks, the firm is creating local, inclusive economic growth. If you have a small business and would like to learn more about programs JPMorgan Chase is supporting in the community, please visit jpmorganchase.com slash smallbusinessforward. Did you see yourself in the Navy as a SEAL, as a long-term career? I never did. I always wanted to do it while I enjoyed the job. While you enjoyed the job. So right. like this, the day you stopped enjoying it. Yeah. I mean, it takes time to get there. Right? Yeah. It's never like a black and white idea, but you have to understand what you're giving up and what you're getting. Hmm. And so for me, you know, because of my timing, training, buds, 9-11 kicks off. Everything I saw was tied to combat. So that was really, really attractive hmm. to me. I enjoyed doing the work. Um, as an officer, the higher up in rank you get, the more responsibility you get naturally. But at some point, your your closeness, your proximity to the battlefield, the actual true battlefield, uh, becomes a lot wider. And as you're moving away from combat, you, I guess it's like any other company, you become middle management and upper management, but the, the actual thing you started doing, is it fair to say you're more removed from that? Yeah, you're more removed, you know. It's not that the jobs are not important because yeah. you need good executive officers. You need good commanding officers because they're ultimately going to lead that group. Mm -hmm. I think for me, you know, the second 10 years would have been a lot more detached from the actual job mm -hmm. that I was doing before. When did you make the decision to leave the SEALs? It takes time. Um, when I got to the troop commander spots, a friend turned me into those derivative uh, options trading. Oh. That was really the, was the spark that would 
be the cause of me leaving. And so that spark would actually drive me to pursue an MBA in Columbia where I was going to do investing. I didn't know what type of investing I was going to do. Why was business school important as a stepping stone to get into investing? I think looking back it served a couple of purposes. One was it did provide me a transition period. You know, you're you're coming off of ten years of running really hard, sort of full throttle. And you don't really want to throttle back. You don't know how to throttle back. That eased me into the throttling back to a certain degree. What was it like to throttle back as a student coming from the SEALs? You know, I'm getting ready for the first day of business school. Yeah. And, you know, I'm married uh, to my wife, Andrea, and day one of business school. And she gives me, you know, a sack lunch and she looks at me and she fixes my collar and she's like, chin up, people are going to like you. And that was kind of like the dynamic that I'm going into. You know, after doing everything that I was able to do, now it's like, now you're a student again. Did you feel uncomfortable? No, I didn't feel uncomfortable. And I hate to describe it like this, but they discuss astronauts going to the moon. And when you come back from that, it's kind of like, well, now what? What do I do? And a lot of times they tend to sort of get a little bit I don't know, they dissipate a little bit because they just don't know what that purpose is. Mm-hmm. What elements of finance satisfy that exhilaration that you got from being in the Navy? I think it's a couple of things. One is problem solving. The other is sort of just how do you make decisions with less than perfect information, which is very applicable to, I think, stocks or managing a portfolio in general, studying companies. Um, but I think that in the Navy... A lot of people think that, you know, our units get a manila folder, you know, with a top secret thing on the top. And it says, this is your target. This is who you're going after. Go do it. Hmm. That's not how we do it at all. It's actually, we we look at these people or these targets or whoever, we're, what we're trying to do, we study them. We look at various forms of intelligence. We see how those intelligence, those, those these sort of siloed sources of information, we see where there's commonalities across it. Does that either support our thesis and increase the chances that we're going after the right person or does it take it down? Mm -hmm. Um, And for me, like value investing, it encompasses a lot of these things that we did before. Yeah. So Mike became a value investor. How does that connect at all with this guy who is a Navy SEAL? So much uh, about investing is having a process staying true to that process. And instead of trying to hit flashy home runs, really going for one foot after the other. And you see that in how Mike really embodies the Buffett and Munger style of value investing, which is around discipline and consistency and not being splashy. And so the parallel to the SEALs is that they're always trying to add in some margin so that enough things can go wrong without totally endangering their lives or risking the mission. Absolutely, because their operations are rife with incomplete information. And so what they're trying to do is build in that cushion, whether it's through strategy or through time of day or through which teams uh, they bring in to really give themselves the protection and the confidence that even if things go wrong, the mission can still be very successful. Yeah, that sounds a lot like stock investing, the idea that you are making a bet, a decision with totally incomplete information. 
And Mike, he loved that part about the SEALs, this problem-solving. That's something that he was well-versed in as a SEAL, where you are dropped into these situations that are completely unfamiliar to you and may not even be relevant to the way you might have trained in the past. Yet through that piecing together of the puzzle, putting the right guardrails around it, you then have the confidence to move forward. Having worked on Wall Street, I know that there's a very high demand for, you know, the MBA, Navy retired SEAL. I mean, doors open across very interesting Wall Street jobs there. And then there's another route that I also know about as an investor is starting your own fund. Right. Which is very high risk, very hard. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, what's the backup plan? Yeah. Like your contingency plan. You know, if you go backwards and reverse now, it's like, okay, this doesn't work, then I go look for, you know, a position at a fund. Mm-hmm. If I can't get a position at a fund, then I go to sort of a, you know, uh, maybe a larger, a bigger bank where they probably have a position where I can go into. Mm-hmm. There's these things that you can do that sort of backstop. Mm-hmm. From a personal level, though, it was, what's the downside for us? You know, my wife and I, we didn't have kids at the time. Okay. You know, and I wasn't working during Columbia, so we only had one income. And so the question was, can we maintain this standard of living for the next five years? Are we good with that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm frankly able to do this because she's continuing to work. And if she ever decided that she didn't want to or something happened, then it would change the, uh, <laughs> the calculation. How long did you and your wife give your business to succeed? Well, I mean, the window was three to five years. Three to five years. Um, we're going on the end of our sixth year. You know, we're still right there at the point where we're saying, hey, we're we're right on the cusp of being able to break through. And so you got to sort of understand that. I mean, there's never a clear sign. Yeah. And we did the diligent thing. You know, I'm, I'm sort of trying to be thoughtful of saying, hey, these are our goals for year three, year five. These are our benchmarks where we have to be at. And you want to be careful not to move the goalposts sort of just blindly, right? But you have to be able to understand, you know, again, reassess where you are, reassess your situation, and either move forward or don't. And mm-hmm. so you have to be able to do that and, um, you know, continuously adapt. What has been the hardest part of building your own investment firm? To me, the hardest is uh, the most exciting, I guess. It's it's a grind. Yeah. You know, it's it's easy. Somebody said it. It's easy to run an investment fund. First, you got to raise money, and then you have to invest it well. Mm-hmm. Like those two things, that's all you have to do. Mm-hmm. And if you can do that, then you're going to be good, right? But there's so many caveats and nuances between both of those that it becomes challenging. So you have to, you know, for me, it was a sort of an idea of saying, hey, I'm jumping out of an airplane and I don't know how to skydive and I don't know how to pack the chute. So as I'm falling, I've got to figure this thing out. Mm-hmm. And there's a little bit of part of that, right? And you mitigate that because you have great, you know, mentors, you have a great network, you have people that have done this before, you're mm-hmm. seeking advice, like you're trying to you know, sort of, but you're still doing it. You're learning, you know, you're trying to figure it out. Do you have any lessons for people who are transitioning into totally different careers? You know, I think the lessons are you, you have to understand what you did in your former profession and see how those skills translate. And the more you can get comfortable with, you know, what you did, the, the more you can sort of communicate that to what you're doing now or what you're, what you intend to do. And I think it's, you know, just being self-aware and, and, you know, doing the homework that's involved and communicating that. Awesome. 
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. That seems like good advice for people who are not just switching careers, but people who are just in their own job and kind of assessing what they actually do and are good at. Self-assessment around one's skills, some people might even call it superpowers, is a really powerful thing because if you can strip away the functionality of the task and really get to the core of the intention of the knowledge or even the wisdom, then you really have something that you can transfer to others if you're staying at your firm or to new roles and companies if you're trying to recreate your career. Thank you for listening to Forward Thinking, brought to you by Quartz and supported by J.P. Morgan Chase. If you want to learn more about recreating your career, please visit qz.com work. And to learn more about me, your host, please visit radreads.co. This podcast was produced by Jessica Glazer and Oluwakemi Aladesui, with additional production support from N2 Communications and original score by Hannes Brown. Next time, I talk to Leanne Lord, who transitioned out of an unhappy job in communications to pursue her dream of stand-up comedy. I would come in, I would work a full day, and then I would change clothes in the office bathroom and then go out, you know, grab something to eat and then go to comedy clubs at night. I was burning the candle at both ends. I wasn't crazy enough to go, I want to do comedy, I should quit my job. I was not that insane. <laughs>